0: Hey, this is Lena Ford, you are listening to Focus on Metal.
1: Hey, metalheads. Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. So usually in a given show, we've got uh, either like a throwback thing where we're looking at the past or we're looking at a latest release or something like that. This week, somehow, Richie has been able to get both of those out of one guest. Yep, he's got uh, a chat with guitar player Bill Leverty about Bill's latest solo release called Divided We Fall, which came out back in uh, in June But also, while he had him on the phone, he figured I might as well talk to him a little bit about Firehouse as well. And so Richie also asked Bill if he could chat a bit about uh, the uh, Firehouse release, Firehouse 3. And also some chatting about just the general stuff going on in the world and all that good stuff as well. So obviously, Richie had a crap load of talk with Bill, which means we've got a lot of stuff you're bringing this week. So I'm going to shut the hell up. I'm going to turn it over to Richie. And guitarist Bill Leverty.
0: Hey, Richard, how you doing?
1: I'm okay, Bill. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic.
1: Okay, How's so going? no problem. So,
2: where are you? Where are you based? I'm in Virginia. Okay, um, I'm just outside of Boston.
0: Okay, cool.
2: Um, but you can probably tell um, I'm not from the U.S. originally, I'm from Ireland.
0: Oh, all right. Well, that's where my answers are from. They're from Donegal.
2: Donegal, yeah, and up the north. Um, have you ever been in Ireland?
0: Yes, I have. Belfast okay. and. Um, uh, Dublin.
2: Okay. Have you ever? You never. Have you ever played there? Yes. Oh, okay. Solo or with Firehouse?
0: With Firehouse. Yeah, I, I don't do live shows with my solo
2: gig. It's just, just. Uh,
0: I so I've done one, but I I normally don't. It's just uh, conflicts.
2: Okay. W- when did you play in Ireland with Firehouse? Can you remember? Um.
0: Let me think. I would say that would have been in 2003.
2: Okay, nice. Was it in Belt? Yeah, was-
0: uh, it was. It was wonderful. A guy named Kieran Dargan, who was from Limerick. Yeah, I know um, him. Brought us over. To- you know Kieran? Yeah, uh,
2: I, 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 I don't, I don't know him, but I know people who've mentioned his name loads of times to me. Do I know him? So I know of him.
0: Yeah. So he's he was a he promoted uh, some shows where we played. Um, up there in the UK a lot uh, it, was, it was I mean it was a tour that he, he put together so we probably did I'm guessing 15 dates up there you know nice uh, one you know England and Scotland and Ireland
2: nice nice I, wonderful. I, I didn't think you played I, I never thought you played in Ireland but then again you're just out of telling me you did so <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: yeah we've only we've only played there uh, played there those two gigs Belfast and Dublin Okay. And um even when we toured back in the good old days in 92 in, in Europe with uh, Status Quo, I don't think they played Ireland. Um they played Scotland, but I don't think they played they played Ireland.
2: Okay. Yeah. You you played with Status Quo, so you got to meet Rick Parfitt and Francis Rossi.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, they were wonderful guys and yeah, I was sad when when we lost Rick. Uh he's a wonderful guy
2: mm-hmm. how did you go down with those the status quo crowd because they, they can they're very loyal to status quo i don't know how loyal they are to other bands that play with them though
0: yeah we were concerned that um about that because we heard but it was great their audience was wonderful they accepted us quite well and um we, we just had the best time and and the band and crew treated us really, really well. I think that's probably the best we've ever been treated on. Nice. Treated by a headliner. I mean, they invited us to come in to have dinner with them every night, and you know, they, they, man, those guys really, really toured at the at the top level of, of success. I you mean, know, they, they're they're touring entourage and and everything. They have two chefs that they had out on the road. We got to eat, you know, the the gourmet cooked meals every night. It was just wonderful.
2: Yeah. Bill, how aware were you of Status Quo's music? Because in the UK and in Europe, they're huge, but they're not necessarily that big in the US.
0: Right. The only song I heard was Pictures Pictures of Matchstick Men um, a long time ago. Or before, you know, 92 is when we toured with him. So it was probably 10 or 20 years before that where I heard that song. And uh, I thought that was cool. Stata- status quo is how we, we pronounced it over here. And, and uh, so didn't hear a thing about him until, you know, we put out our, our record and um, the record company got us that tour. Okay. Just, just a, what a great band. I mean, all those songs were awesome. I can't believe they didn't hit bigger over here. But I heard the story of why, because I got to meet their manager and he was a wonderful guy too. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Now, if memory serves, and I, you, you played your first show last weekend with Firehouse in five or six months, can you tell me a little bit how, that, how, how all that came about?
3: Oh,
0: that was wonderful. That was absolutely glorious.
2: <laughs> <Get> <laughs> back
0: out on stage and play the, the songs again
3: uh, and be
0: with my bandmates and, and the crew. And um, well, so it was a private event that had been scheduled. Oh my gosh, uh, I don't know when it was put on the books, but um, they were able to do the social distancing and, and all that. And it was a kid. It, it was an indoor gig. And um, we played and and got to meet a bunch of people. And and it, it just felt great to be for, for that day to, to have a normal day again it was just absolutely wonderful
2: nice nice um how many shows this year have you had to cancel
0: oh my goodness i'm guessing um 30 wow so far that many so far and and but a lot of them have been postponed to 2021 yeah um but we last year we did um almost 60 shows. I think we did 57 shows. Nice. And, uh, this year we were on track to do that many, or maybe a few more. And then, um, March 14th was our last show. And, um, hadn't played since until that, that private show happened, but all the other shows where they're, you know, selling t- selling them tickets or whatever, they, um, they're not happening. And, um, we've got one coming up October 1st in Virginia, here at a, at a theater and it's the rule is that it, they can't sell beyond half capacity so it's already sold out so if the governor lets the show go on we're going to play and we're looking forward to it
2: mm. now the show you did last weekend bill were you able to do any rehearsal at all for it
0: no we did a sound check but uh, i did all my homework uh, a few days before I got there, I, I'm practicing and going over my solos and going over the chord progressions and singing along with my parts and, huh. and all that, and that's what everybody does. So we, you do your homework, you uh, you can come in prepared, and, and there's uh, there's less chance of a train wreck.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, I always ask the guitar players this question, and I've never interviewed you before. How many guitars do you think you have in your house?
0: Um, I'm going to say 20.
2: Okay. Um, what's the oldest one that you have? Like, is the one from before your firehouse days that you still kept?
0: Well, I have a 1924, uh, banjo that my uncle gave me. So it's not a guitar. So that, I don't know if that, you know, stringed instrument. Uh,
3: mm, yeah.
0: So th- that's a pretty cool, uh, instrument. And I played that actually on a solo for a song called run on on my deep south album and um but the oldest real uh guitar i have uh uh, is a 1965 fender Strat. it's a it's a beautiful guitar i'm looking at the case right now
2: nice nice have you ever um gotten rid of a guitar and regretted selling it oh every one of them
0: (laughs) 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 But, but the way it worked for me as a kid was um you know, i buy a guitar. I had a paper route, so I, I delivered papers, saved up my money, bought a guitar. The first electric guitar I bought was a Fender Mustang. I wish I still had that guitar. But I took that guitar and then added some money to it for my paper route to buy my first Les Paul. It was a Les Paul Custom. It was wine red, and I still wish I had that guitar. And, but I sold that one. Uh, actually, I, I saved up enough money to buy a second one, so I had two and the, the second was a Black Beauty Les Paul Custom. They were both mid-70s. You might be early 70s um, model uh, years. And then um, along came Eddie Van Halen, and I had to have a guitar with a whammy bar, and preferably with a Floyd Rose. And one of the, the first Charvel guitars that had a, the original Floyd Rose um, was being sold by a, a great studio guitarist here in town named Velpo Robertson, and um, he he sold it to me. But I had to sell one of the Les Pauls in order to get the money to get that. So I got that that guitar, and then I sold that. So I regret all those guitars, because that original Floyd Rose Charvel was just a great sounding guitar in it. And it had that original Floyd Rose. Like, Brad Gillis still has his original Floyd Rose. Hmm. And, um, you know, so all those guitars I regret. But um, they all led to the guitars that, you know, like eventually the the first guitar, uh, the guitar that I recorded uh, the first Firehouse record with was a Jackson soloist custom. So I had to sell the Charvel and the Les Paul to get that. Okay. So, that's just kind of how that works. I know? think I and mean, I sold guitars to get amps and, and, and all that too. So the amps were just as important as the guitars in some ways.
2: Yeah, I, I, the only guitarist I I can remember who who said that they had the first guitar that they ever bought with their own money was Richie Cotson. And nearly everybody wow. else has told me what you just said that they regret Getting rid of all these guitars they'd love if they had the first one, even if it was a, a piece of crap, just for sentimental reasons to say this is the first guitar I ever played.
0: Yeah, it would be it would be nice and um good on Richie for hanging on to his.
2: Hm. Mm, I, I think he told me he had like nearly three hundred guitars in his house.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's I, I don't I ran out of square footage in this house a long time ago. <laughs>
2: So, Bill, would you, you've you played on Firehouse Records? You sang, I think, on, on one or two of them—just a one or two songs here or there. But you've released a string of solo albums where you've sang on all of them. Now, I'm curious to know: Do you classify yourself now as a guitar player who sings, or more more of a singer who plays guitar? <laughs> uh,
0: I'm a guitar player who sings, and I'm you know. I would still, I think the debate is still on as to whether I'm a guitar player <laughs> because I listen to guys like Alan Holdsworth and um, you know, Al Meola and Steve Morse. Those are guitar players. So I, I'm, I'm a guy who, uh, you know, loves music. I love to make it in any way I can get it out there with, with what I've got. Uh, that's what I do. Um, and if, if it's with me, hacking my way through a song on guitar and then, uh, and singing it. And then that's what I do. But I just, I love music and i love cranking out songs. Um, It's a lot of fun.
2: Hmm. What comes to you first now when you're writing though, Bill, because you're doing both. Is it the melody or the riff? It
0: depends. Uh, Um, There were, I'd say, half and half. Half of the songs on this my latest album uh, were ideas that I sang that that just came to me, you know, in the shower or while driving. Um, And then the other half were chord progressions that I had, where I got a melody to go with the chord progression, and then I figured out what that melody and the chord progression sounded like lyrically it wanted to sing about. So I always try to let the song tell me what to do instead of me going in with a preconceived idea of what this song should should do. So maybe I'd, I'd be more prolific if I said, okay, I'm going to sing about uh, you know the weather today. And then write a song about the weather. But it, that hasn't been very productive for me. It's more been uh, either the idea comes, like I'll see a sign and I'll twist the words around and and come up with the song, or I'll you know have an idea that just comes up in my head and I'll work on it that way, or a melody, and then I'll listen to it and try to figure out what the subject matter is.
2: Mm. Have you ever woken up and the song's already written in your head? You just do it subconsciously?
0: Not completely. No, I've, I've woken up with ideas, a melody, and a lyric, but I haven't woken up with the whole thing ever. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for that to come in, nice. <laughs>
3: man.
2: Um, how long do you work on an idea before you leave it? And, and, and do you revisit some of your, your your ideas from the past, or do you just always try and write on a new from a new slate?
0: Well, I have a, a, a book of hooks it's called a hook book and it's got lines lyrical lines and and stuff like that and then in my studio i've got a, a bunch of different files of chord progressions or riffs or musical ideas and i try to catalog them with the tempo and the key that they're in and maybe what they sound like a little bit. If it's a little something, a little bit a little like reminiscent of a Ze- Zeppelin riff or something like that, I'll put you know, 80 beats per minute, Led Zepp, um, key of E, you know, or something like that. Oh. Um, so then, you know, and that's, those are the ideas. And then i go back through and I'll listen to them later and see if they still make me feel like they're worth working on. More often than not, I'll go, you know, that's, that was exciting then, but it's not exciting me right now. So I, I put it over in this other folder that's like, maybe later. And um, But to pursue an idea all the way through to completion, it really has to be an idea that I really feel strongly about, that I, I, I think I can make into a song that I'm going to listen to 10 years from now and go, I still enjoy listening to that one.
2: Hmm. Th- did that make "Divided We Fall" easier to do then? Because it was. It took seven years to release it from your last record.
0: Yeah. So the story behind that is that, that I I wrote my first my first one and I released it as a single. Uh, I needed ten songs to complete an album. I, I don't feel like um, you know it's it's I feel like it, you really need ten to make an album um in order to give the, the, the fans their money's worth. I um, believe me, I wanted to be done at, at eight, you know, but I I felt like I needed to do all ten to make it a real album. So finished the first song. I released it as a single. In the meantime, Firehouse is doing between fifty and sixty shows a year. I'm mixing songs for other artists. I'm producing people here in my studio. I'm engineering other sessions that come in from other artists Uh, i've got a family um i've got you know other things and then lo and behold another idea came in my head i that was good enough to complete a song i would complete that complete that song release it and release it as a single and then repeat the cycle so it took that long for me to get 10 songs that I felt strongly about in the meantime life was going on and my solo album wasn't the priority it was definitely on the back burner as kind of a, a hobby that was part of my career my career is firehouse and um, and we get we get real busy um, and um, most of our shows are fly dates. So we have to wake up at 3 a.m. to get to the airport in time to fly out to where we got to play to get back after a weekend of doing that or three days of doing that. And then you're exhausted for a couple of days and you don't feel like working on a song. So that's why it took that long. And, you know, Once I got nine songs done, I felt the pressure of I, got, I need one more song. And I had the chord progression and I had the melody and I had the chords after the chorus. But I just didn't know what I wanted to sing about, and it took me almost a year to to decide what I wanted it to be about. And then that's where I finally came up with um, the twist on the uh, "United We Stand, Divided We Fall." And it was "United We All Stand Tall, But Divided We Fall." Uh, so I, th- I thought, and that's that's something worth pursuing lyrically for a, a song. I can I can make something out of that. Um, so Divided We Fall was my last song. That's the title of the album. And here we are.
2: Mm. Bill, is that one of the reasons that you, you self-released a record? Because you couldn't commit to a timeline to get it done. Like, you know, your Frontiers records now are approaching everyone, but they want the albums done in a certain timeline that you couldn't really commit to doing that.
0: You're exactly right. I, I could not commit to, to having an album done in a year. Where I was happy with all of the songs, um, I could rush something through, and um, then it would—I you know, wouldn't be happy as an artist, and um, and I would also not be happy in my personal life because my uh, my family time, my family time would suffer. Uh, the time with the other things that I do with that you know I, I love to do would suffer. So I thought. Yeah, I'm just gonna do it my way, and I, you know, I don't really, I don't really need to be on a, on a label. I really want to do it my way. I don't want to be beholden to anyone and have somebody say, ah, oh, you know, I like all this stuff, but I don't hear single and, and all that that you hear from uh, record companies that, that say that kind of stuff. So I just, I just want to do it Frank Zappa's way, you know. Now Frank Zappa could do it a lot better in a lot shorter period of time but he just put it out on his own label and kind of an underground thing. And, you know, and, and he, he made great music. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to make great music one
2: day. Maybe I will. Hmm. Bill, the 10 songs on the record and over seven years, I'm trying to think, was there writing sessions where you wrote three or four songs and only one made the album or maybe two that you might have written 20, 25 full songs and you picked 10 of the best?
0: No, I, w- I wrote one song at a time and released it as a single. Uh, th- that one song was refined down from probably 100 ideas that just I thought was, co- was good at the time, but then I came back and listened to it later and I, you it know, just sounded... Uh, kind of plain to me, and um, but the, out of the ten that uh, that are on the album, it's it's from refining ideas down to making you know songs that uh, that I felt were good enough. So I didn't I didn't write 20 songs, but I have 200 ideas worth of, of material, you know, in my studio on on my computer that um uh, you could say were songs, but they to me they weren't really songs yet
2: hm mm. so you you said that divided we fall was the hardest one that it took you about a year to get it the way you wanted it. What was the easiest track yeah, on not the
0: mu- not musically, not musically yeah. lyrically, okay, lyrically that, that's that I struggled with that one good. I mean, number one because it was the the last song on the record, and and I, it had to be as good, if not better than the other ones um for substance so that's that's what really i think made it tough
2: yeah what what was the easiest song to write on the record then
0: the first one
2: (laughs) (laughs) you're a natural the the
0: first one was the first one was called ace bandage no the first one that i wrote okay first one that i wrote was called ace bandage and it was um it was a, It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek. Now, in America, I found out uh, by doing an interview, an international interview uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ace Bandage isn't an international thing. But over here, um, it's Ace. Ace is a company that makes these these bandages that you use as splints and as supports for your ankles or your knee or your wrist. Um, and I had a a, a wrist. Of a little bit of a wrist injury, so I, I had a, an ace bandage that I wrapped around my wrist, and I thought, you yeah, know, that'd be pretty, pretty fun to make a song with. And I was in the shower, and um, I in my head came, uh, I'm an ace bandage, wrap me around your heart. And so I like, well, oh, that, that's fun, that's that made me laugh. I sang it for my wife and my daughter, and they laughed, so I'm like, okay, sounds worth doing. So I went down and, and wrote it, and it's more of a bluesy progression, which those are. they they tend to write themselves a little easier because uh, it's three or four, maybe five chords. And, um, but to me, it's still a song that I really, really get a great feeling listening, listening to it. So it it makes me, makes me smile.
2: Mm. Bill, how mindful are you of your audience for your solo stuff? And the reason I'm asking is, um, with Firehouse, you're in a niche market, melodic rock market. But then when you do your solo stuff, most of your audience are probably Firehouse fans. So do you feel pressured to make music that's a lot similar to that, that you don't want to completely alienate yourself altogether?
0: No, I don't. And I really feel that my audience is is only one person, and that's myself. Okay. If I can make an album that I enjoy that I feel like I'm going to listen to in the future and still enjoy, then I, I feel good about it and I'll put it out there. If people like it, that's great. I really hope they do. I, I really hope that a lot of people get a chance to listen to it and give it a fair listen. Um,
3: huh.
0: And if they don't, that's okay as well. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be firehouse. I'm not trying to be um, um, something that the firehouse fans will like i'm just trying to make music that's that's my style and my style is is kind of uh, strange it's it's a little bit of everything It's a little bit all over the place but i still love big guitars and big drums and and i like i like melody so
2: yeah yeah bill can we spend a little bit of time talking about the uh the Farhouse tree album that's 25 years old this year sure um i you probably have a lot of people asking you about the debut because that's 30 years old, but I, I really do want to talk to you about firehouse tree because of when it came out primarily. Um, so it came out on April 11, 1995. And the first guy I need to ask you about is Michael Kaplan, your A&R guy. Can you tell me about your relationship with him? Yeah, we had
0: a great relationship with Michael Kaplan and, um, He's the guy who signed us. He's the guy who came to the club in Charlotte, North Carolina and saw us. Um, and he's a great guy. He didn't try to change us at all, didn't try to change one lyric. He just wanted us to be the best that we could be and um, hooked us up with our first producer, David Parader, who did a great job producing our first two albums. And um, when it came time to do the third album, uh, Michael and you know he said hey why don't we why don't we change it up a little bit and get a different producer and uh, we thought Ron Nevison would be be a great guy he was a fantastic uh, classic rock producer with all the experience of, of all of our a lot of our favorite bands and, and groups so um, Michael Kaplan kind of helped helped us make that decision and Yeah, And he's a great guy. I'm still friends with him today.
2: Hmm. Um, Did you want to work with David Prater again on the third record?
0: I think we all wanted to work with Prater and uh, Doug Oberkircher, the engineer. At the same time, we were open to you know, switching it up a little bit to make a record that would be more, um, more of a, a classic rock sounding record. Um, so we we all talked about it and you know, it wasn't like we were adamant in, in not wanting to work with him anymore and it wasn't like we were adamant in wanting to get a new producer we just discussed it and the outcome of those discussions were that uh you yeah, know let's 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 go for a little bit different sound on this record you know let's let's get Madison.
2: Oh. Bill when did you get a sense that the musical climate was changing was it was it more when you went out on tour for Hold Your Fire or even before you recorded well, it?
0: Well, was, it was after recording Hold Your Fire. Um, and uh, hearing... Uh, we were in England touring the status quo in December of 92. And um, I heard... Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit and um i thought wow that is so cool how different how heavy and, and you know it was pure um and so i didn't really see the industry changing uh, at the time i just heard a new band that sounded different and and that was cool and um and it was in a club and um I saw, you know, kids reacting to it in the club, and I was like, wow, this this is wild. Um, it wasn't until, you know, okay, so after we finished that tour, we took a little time off to write the third record, and um, I was listening to the radio, and I heard, you know, other bands come in, and I did notice that uh, when we went up to Epic Records that the um big poster huge massive poster that was behind the, the secretary who would let you in Was um, it used to be a firehouse poster and then it became a, a Pearl Jam poster <laughs> so I was like who's this Pearl Jam man oh we'll give you the CD so I listened to the Pearl Jam record I'm like that's, that's a cool record you know it sounds cool um, I didn't know that it would be like the biggest thing you know with Nirvana Um, so when we were writing the, you know, the, the next record, we, you know, of course we're watching a little MTV, and and um, their first couple of singles were played all the time, and then we saw uh, MTV kind of set the stage for all the radio stations. Whatever MTV was playing, all the radio stations on the rock side would follow suit, and I saw a lot of those bands being played heavily on MTV. And then I heard the rock station kind of start stopping to play bands like us and really starting to heavily play those bands. And, um, and it wasn't, it probably was a matter of a year before our style of music wasn't being played at all on the rock stations. And by that time we were in the studio in LA recording with Ryan Nevison at, um, the you know, Rumbo Studios, which is uh, where Guns N' Roses recorded Appetite for Destruction and Traveling Wilberries recorded their debut album. Just a wonderful studio, but it was very expensive. So, had we known that this was coming, we probably would have done a budget record with the same songs and not gone for the A-level producer and the A-level studio. We would have said, let's let's you know figure out how to work the budget out so we'll have some money left over, which there was no money left over. Yeah, and and then the, you know so hindsight's twenty twenty, but that's that's kind of the way I remember seeing it happen.
2: Yeah, yeah, because the reason I'm asking that question is um, and, and all about Michael Kaplan because you hear all these stories about bands back then that came out in the late eighties, the Winger, Warrant. Um Winger split up after Pull, Warrant lost her deal after Dog Eat Dog and I think Ultrophobic came out in, in 95 on CMC and I was just wondering what your relationship was like with Epic because you were really one of the last bands from that era that still had a major label deal around that time
0: Yeah I guess so I, I, it was a great relationship I and mean, we loved everybody up there um Dearly, I mean, we were they were we were really good, really tight with everybody at the label, and they they loved us. Uh, the industry changed so much that it became a very big challenge for them to push any songs off of our new album at rock radio. I remember a, a quote from one of the executives up there that said, "You know, you could have the new Pearl Jam record." inside that cd case but if it says firehouse on the cover the rock stations aren't going to play it and it was because of our history and our sound that was our Mm. sound on our first couple of records was big rock arena rock and the new sound was grunge and even if we wrote the the new grunge record that was the best grunge record ever, which that really wasn't
3: what we were going to do, uh,
0: they weren't going to play it because of the name of the band. So we were like, well, okay, we're going to stay true to our roots, play music that we love, write the music we love, and and put out a record that that we love. And um, they took the ballad that was on there and took it to Top 40 Radio, and we got a top... 30 hit, I think if the song went to top I think it went top 25 or something like that mm. and so uh, they did it with very little promotion either. they didn't They didn't spend hardly any money on a video um, and they didn't spend hardly any money in trying to get these stations to play the song which usually there's lots of giveaways and lots of prizes and dinners and all kinds of you know, arm twisting that goes on uh, there really wasn't any of that um, but, lo and behold, we we got a hit out of it. Oh. And that was at the same time that we were, we were competing with, um, I believe the song was um, uh, Kiss from a, a, a Rose by a Seal, which mm-hmm. was a nice great song. So we were trying to get up into, you know, a little higher, but there's only there's so many, they say the, the air gets mighty thin at the top, and there isn't much room at the top for ballads, because top 40 stations want to keep the tempo up. So it's mostly dancing. Dance, 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 ballad. Dance, 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 dance ballad. So we were watching Seal stay up there at number one for so long. We were like, come on, dude! <laughs> Give us a shot! But, uh, you know, that's just the way it went. He had such a great song, and we weren't able to, to get up any higher, but um, I still feel like um, the song went to number one, and a couple of cities around the country. Yeah. Um, but, um, you yeah. so we, we had a hit with that, and that's what kept us, kept our deal.
2: Yeah. B- Bill, I want to talk to you a little bit about Ron Nevison. And because he did all these classic albums in the 70s, but a lot of the albums he did in the 80s Heart, Aussie, Kiss, um, he changed their sound for radio and he brought in outside songwriters. Were you worried he'd do that in the '90s with you guys and try and change your sound to for the grunge era?
0: No, he didn't. He did. We we hired him. Um, I, actually, we had him come down to my house and stay. He stayed in a in a hotel um, just kind of a few blocks away, and um, he hung out with uh, C.J. and myself while we were writing songs and and kind of. We just told stories and and he kind of gave us his suggestions. And and I had a little studio in a bedroom, and we laid down a a few tracks and kind of got so that we felt, yeah, we're really comfortable with the guy we want him. But he didn't change anything. He, we, you know, I told him, man, the reason I really want you is because of Michael Schenker and, you know, what you recorded with all those UFO records and the solo um, Michael Schenker records and of course Damn Yankees you know I love that Tommy and Jack and Ted Michael were all saying how great Ron was to work with and um, so it was you know nothing was said to try to change our sound other than let's make the album sound like it's it's in your living room uh, instead of in an arena you know we want to make it sound like a Led Zeppelin record instead of uh, a big bombastic record, which I love both, you know, but we wanted to try to do something that was more of a, uh, more of the, the Zeppelin style, which he worked on physical graffiti. So, you know, and, and he was just such a great producer. I've learned so much from him and I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great people. Uh, and, um, and Ron had, uh, Chris Lord Algy mix the album. So, you know, he's, he's, probably the greatest mix engineer that the world has had in the last uh, you know, 30 years. So mm. just great working with him as well.
2: Yeah. Now I've read in a, a couple of books that Ron can be a bit of a ball buster in the studio though. Is that because you don't have your chops down? Is he like, w- w- why do you think that is?
0: I didn't experience that at all. I just, you know, He taught me more about feel than I've ever learned from anybody else. And um, once I learned from him what the feel was, how important playing in time was and making it feel right, I got it. So I had to really work on, I can speak personally, that I had to work on, um, I had to come in with my homework done. And if you don't do your homework and you show up to a studio session, your producer isn't going to be happy because he's trying to keep the, the project going you know, in, under budget. Um, fortunately, everybody in the band was doing their homework. Um, but we all learned from Ron, and, and, and in learning from, from what he was saying, you, you had to get it. You had to get it that something that isn't feeling right and it's usually in in the timing of, of how you're playing. And of course, if you're out of tune or, or you know, if the tone isn't right, that's that's another issue. But Ron was a, a really more of a feel guy in making sure that everything felt right. And um, so maybe that's what other people, you know, were you know griping about. But I never felt that with with Ron, other than. You know, when it took me a couple of times to, there were two songs on that record that I struggled with a little bit, and I knew it. I could tell by listening that um, I lived my life for you. Um, I had to come back in and, and do the acoustic part a second session. And did the first session; it sounded okay. It probably could have could have gone out, but it didn't sound like it felt right. So I really had to go home and practice that more. And came in the next day and I got it. And the other one was um, a song called Something, Something About Your Body and huh. um, getting that song to swing and feel just right. Um, it was it was a struggle for me, but uh, I came back in and I got it. But, uh, you know, it was definitely one of those where you, you come in the first day thinking, oh, I got this. And then you listen back and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and, I've got to be honest with myself and saying, you know, it's, it's I'm not nailing it. You know, I've got to come back. Yeah. So that's, that's the way it was with Ron. He was, he was honest, but the, the playback on the recording is what was honest. And he just helped me see that.
2: Mm. So what's, Bill, what's the biggest difference then between the way Ron produced you and the way David Frater produced you?
0: Well, Ron had us um, at SIR uh, rehearse for, um, I guess, a week before we went into the studio. David had us record all the songs in his home studio in his basement before we went into the big studio up in New York, Bear Tracks. So, one, one David's method was... To record all the songs in pre production, then go over over to do it. Ron's method was to rehearse the stuff live, kind of like, you know, the the big rehearsal room, Uh you know, with the PA and everything. So that was a big difference in uh, getting the songs to sound really good live before we went in and cut the tracks. The other thing was that when we cut the tracks with Ron Nevison, we all cut the tracks live. Uh, whereas with David It was the other method Which I love both methods Where you lay down a click track Lay down scratch guitars Lay down a scratch bass And then go in and record the drums For real With uh, with those reference tracks And then replace them And build them up from there So um, Ron had us all cut our tracks live and then his plan was only to keep the drums, but it gave that human feel to, to Michael and the energy because we were all in the room with him while he was laying down his stuff. CJ was in a vocal booth off to the side, but we were all doing it together. So I think it, it's a different method, and we, we wanted to do that. So that was, that was cool. Those are the two
3: biggest things, I would say.
2: Mm. So, so, Bill, how often did you pick Ron's brain? About some albums he did in the past, you must have asked him about Zeppelin and Heart and all these amazing records he did.
0: Every day, every day. <laughs> I was in the studio. I was in the studio every day, um, from the beginning till the end. The only uh, times I weren't in there was once we got doing lead vocals. I left. So I was like, I'm done because all day during the, the first part of the day, I've been doing solos, but, um, every day at, we, we had lunch every day and we did a lot of dinners also. And that, that was always the topic of conversation. Uh, you know, the website, he, he played me some stuff off the, um, uh, some, some tapes that, um, he held onto and, and he, he always will, but he played me some cassettes of some, some physical graffiti stuff, oh. without all the orchestration, and uh, it was just it was cashmere. I mean, it was just
3: amazing. Wow. <laughs> and um,
0: he he never spoke poorly of anybody. I I noticed that about him is that you know you'd ask him about you know any artist, and he would always say the good things about those artists. And yeah, uh, you know, Jakey Lee. He said, "Oh, that that guy came in so prepared. He was he was so good." You know. Mm. And, um, and the same thing about Ozzy, you know. And, and, and so Ozzy was on our label, uh, Epic. So, uh, you know, I had got to meet Ozzy a few times. I never got to meet Jake, but uh, I, was, I loved that Bark of the Moon album. And um, yeah, so he loved the sounds of that record, the guitar sound. So he would he'd tell me a little bit about the gear that he remembered. But, you know, when you've done that many records like he had, he had done, It's hard to remember everything, but he he remembered the good stuff. And he he told us about the good stuff. That was what I really liked about Ron.
2: Did you disagree much with him about some things? Because I've had some guitar players on. I'll give you an example. I interviewed Doug Aldridge about three or four months ago. And he did the Hurricane record, Slave to the Trill, that came out in 1990. And he had Michael James Jackson producing that. And he butted heads for the whole album over the guitar sound on it and eventually they came to a compromise was there anything like that with ron at all where he'd offer advice or he'd offer he'd say i want your guitar to sound like this and you just put your foot down and said no i don't agree with that at all
0: nope <laughs> not a one wow because everything that he suggested was great wow he um suggested uh you know i didn't bring out any amps Um, I brought out, I think I probably brought out my tube screamer. (laughs) That's all I brought out for solos, which I didn't use. I didn't really use in the rhythm tracks, but, um, I, he had a rental company that he rented a Marshall that he brought in with the cabinet. And, um, I plugged it in and it just sounded like a million bucks. And I was just smiling from ear to ear. Um, I, the, the acoustic guitars on that record were rental guitars and I picked them up, pulled them out of the case, put them up in the mic, listened in the headphones. And I was like, wow, how beautiful, you know, uh, the, um, even the guitar that I played most of the rhythm tracks with was a guitar that out of the budget, he said, look, you need to get one of these guitars. And I, I bought the guitar and, um, I played all the rhythm, rhythm tracks with that guitar. And, uh, it was, it was a fantastic guitar. I couldn't really play the solos with that guitar, but the tone was great. And the tuning was great. The intonation, it was just a fantastic guitar. So I really didn't even play the guitar that I had, you know, most of the miles under my fingers with on that album, except for solos. Okay. Ron was right. He, he was, he just knew what, where to go in LA to get the best stuff to make it sound the way that he heard it in his head. And we had talked about it before. And, and, uh, I wish we had had a little more time cause he was going to get, do a track uh, on one song called no one at all with the electric 12 string. And I didn't, I didn't get to do that, but he was going to, he was going to get a Rickenbacker 12 to put on there, but, but the, actually the acoustic guitars and the uh, guitar that's on there sounded sounded great so he was like man i think i think we're good i, I wouldn't fill it up anymore so i'm like yeah that's good I, I deferred to his judgment on that i think we saw eye to eye on just about everything
2: nice nice bill can i ask you about one track on the record um what's wrong yeah. the second song um when i heard the album first and i i i heard that song in particular i said right that, to me, might be a compromise to the label, that they want a more modern sounding song on the record. Would that be a fair thing to say? No, nah,
0: the, the label didn't, didn't push us to write anything in any way at all. That was, um, that was the song CJ and I wrote, and it might be just from listening to some of the music that was on the radio at the time, and it kind of gets in by osmosis or whatever, but it was a guitar riff that I had had for a long time, and um, we came up with the, the the chorus. What's wrong with everybody? Why can't every anybody get along? Um, just seemed like a good thing to sing about, and um, and then we we rehearsed it up, and we made it we made it heavy, mm. and um, so that, that really the labels really didn't didn't really try to. Change anything with 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 us ever. I mean, they they never really said uh we want you guys to be more like this, or you know, not, there was never anything like that. And neither did Ron. Well, Ron let it all happen organically within the band.
2: Did so. The label didn't even say, right? We need more ballads because you were you were getting known at that stage, I think, unfairly as, uh, and it this goes across a lot of the hard rock bands they were known as the ballad band that you have to have the ballad. Um, were you worried about the band being known for that? And, and did the label want a, another big ballad for the third record? Did someone come down and say, listen, I don't care what else you do. We need one or two ballads on the record.
3: No,
0: they never did. And, and, um, but, but we had one CJ wrote that one and, um, it was just a great song and, and, and everybody liked it and everybody felt that, um, yeah, that that's got to be on the album, and um, we were sending demos to to our A and R guy, and um, he he was always you know great. I love it. You know, he never said, "Hey, where's the ballad?" Because you
3: know?
0: we had one. We, we we wrote you know CJ wrote that one, um, and uh, we had another one on there. It's kind of a slow tempo, softer song called uh, "No One at All" that I, I mentioned a, a little while ago. And uh-huh. that one's um you know that one was on there also so i think the label felt comfortable that they had some songs some ammunition to go out there and fight the the, the war with and and then there were different battles battle fronts that they would fight the the battle front metal radio even with the song like what's wrong that's a heavy song i think they felt that um that, that was going to be a tough one for them to be able to get you know gain any ground with but with a song like "I Live My Life for You," they could take that to to uh, the, the top forty radio, and they could get they could get some airplay with that, which oh. would help sell records. And that's the way it all that's the way it all went down back then. I said, you know, nobody knows about your record unless you get some airplay with it. Oh. And so they now, felt that um, I guess that that was the single for them.
2: Yeah, now, Bill. In '95, you had a lot of bands putting 70 minutes of music on cds the tesla were doing it metallica were doing it because you could put as much music on a cd as that and you weren't restricted to like 40 45 minutes but when you look at this record there's only 10 tracks on it um was was did you just pick the 10 best songs did you just write 10 songs was there extras left over that you didn't use Can, can you remember
0: I think there might have been a couple left over, but ultimately it came down to our budget. And with a record deal, you, you only get so many dollars per album, and um, we only had so many album, <laughs> so, so many albums sold on the previous record, so we didn't get a huge escalation in our budget.
3: Huh. And with
0: Ron looking at it, he felt like with you, you know after. Working with us He felt like he could Come in under budget With 10 songs And you figure Every Every extra song You add to that Is probably You know 10, 20 grand Worth of uh, Recording Or tracking um, Costs Mixing costs And mastering costs So And and also The time that You're gonna be there For the extra time Staying in the hotels Out in Los Angeles Which ain't cheap And rental cars And And per diems for food and all that so he felt like he could bring in the the, the album with 10 songs um under budget with 10 anything more than that yeah you know, he didn't feel like he could so we had to pick the 10 that we felt would be the best best 10 for us for this album
2: okay i uh, just got a couple of questions bill before i leave you go um what's your favorite song on this record
0: trying to make a living. I think is is my favorite one. It's got a little acoustic intro. It's got some funk feel. It's heavy, and the message I think is um, lyrically is a message that's that um, we all feel. It's, it's it's trying to make a living killing me. It's so hard to to make ends meet. It's you know you feel like you're you're you got a little cushion, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you know, hey, here come the bills. And <laughs> all your money's gone. So. I think that's that's the one that I I if I could play one song for somebody who hadn't heard the album, I'd say just please listen to this one first.
2: Yeah, Bill, I have to ask you about the image on the on the booklet, um, the haircuts, the shirts. Um, was that something that just happened, or did someone tell you, "Listen, we got to change up the image here, for, uh, more to be more in with the time"?
0: Nobody, nobody told us to do anything with our image uh, on that. Um, I was ready to cut my hair. It just stopped, it stopped looking cool to me. Um, I didn't want to have long hair anymore. Um, so I was glad to see other artists uh, that were really successful cut their hair because it made me feel like okay, I'm not going to be totally uh, crazy for cutting my hair, even though there were a lot of fans that were really attached to the to the hair. Uh, but yeah, cutting the hair was, was no big deal to me. It was something I wanted to do. I'm not sure what the shirt thing was on that cover of that album. I think it was just a button down shirt, but um, I, don't, I don't even know where I got that shirt. But it wasn't like they dressed us up or anything for that. We just came in with our own uh, our own gear you know for yeah. that and then did a photo shoot and they, the guy decided he wanted to do uh, a close-up of our faces kind of lined up together so we were like okay let's try that and that's the one that um, you know everybody liked the best
2: mm. now now i live my life for you was the big hit on this and it was pretty big for a band of your ilk from back then because all the rest of the bands were practically ignored by then did it surprise you in that musical climate that it was as big as it was?
0: Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess in in hindsight, I guess I am, um, I am surprised back then. I was thinking, come on, seal, get out of the way. (laughs) We can go top 10 with this one. (laughs) Because I I really felt like it was a beautiful song. Yeah. And, um, and, and even today when we play overseas, um, in all the countries in Asia that we play, that's, that's a big song for, for the audience. Um, that's, that's a people over there really love that song. And I, I always felt like that, that really had the potential of being a number one song.
3: Hmm. Um,
0: and it was in a lot of places around here, you know, um, but nationally it, it got into, like I said, I think it topped out at 26. Yeah. I was, I wanted to I wanted top 10. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I was naive back then thinking that, uh, you know, it was easier than it is. And it's tough to get up there and have a number one song, especially when you got a guy like Seal with a song like that. Yeah. Um, You know, what a great song that was. So and I think that was the story of our life, because I think on um, on our first record, we we all felt like Love of a Lifetime was a number one song. And uh, the song that kept that held under the number one position for months was everything I do. I do for you by Brian Adams with that big movie behind it. It just kept it in number one. And we were at number five and we couldn't get to number one because of that damn song. That
3: Brian Adams.
2: <laughs> Bill, I, I remember that song. I, I was living in Ireland at the time and I, I remember uh, that song. I think it was number one in the UK for like 15 or 16 weeks
0: such a great song and when you got that great of a song and that big of a label and that big of a movie yeah all holding it up there it's hard to compete but we got to number five and um, you yeah, know so that was that was pretty cool yeah so <laughs> it's, so it's so, tough.
2: so bill last question do, do you ever think that firehouse will record a new record
0: yes i do i just think uh we got to start with the first song that we we can, and I think what we'll do is we'll put it out as a single. It's, uh, that's what I'd like to do anyway. Instead of waiting till you have all ten songs, you never know how long that would take. But if we get one song that we all really love and we all really believe in, then we can we can put out that song and then and do another one, and then do another eight, and then we got an album and we'll put out a CD. So hopefully soon.
2: Hmm. Well, Bill, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can buy the CD and get in touch with you?
0: Oh, thank you so much. So so Firehouse's website is firehousemusic.com. My website is liberty.com. And uh, just go there. If you, if you get my CD at liberty.com, there's a little box you can tick and put your name in there, and I'll sign it to you. So I'm, I'm happy to sign it and send it out. And um, I appreciate all the support. If there's, um, you just want to buy the MP3s, you can buy them from my site as well. And uh, so I, I appreciate all the support that the fans have, have given me, especially in this time where we can't go out and make a living playing live, putting out this record. It just so happened that it, it was completed at this time. It's, it's kind of been a saving grace. So mm. I really owe it to the fans for, for keeping me... Uh, Trying to make a living
2: <laughs> well, Bill, thanks for talking to me um It's been a pleasure, and thanks for the years of music.
0: Thank you so much, Richard.
2: All right, and have a good rest of the day and take care of yourself. Okay, buddy. You too.
1: All right. Yeah. No problem. Bye. So like I told you up front, lots of stuff from uh, Bill Leverty this week, all kinds of stuff. Hopefully you got some good insights in there to uh, the making of his new album as well as just looking back to uh, the Firehouse 3 album as well. And as Bill had said at the end, you can go up to uh, any of the places that normally carry the uh, music to pick up the Divided We Fall release. But you could also go up to Leverty.com and he didn't mention it really in the interview, but up there as well. Not just having the ability to have a, an autographed copy if you wanted to, but he's also got a whole bunch of different bundle deals up there as well. Get like all five of his solo albums on MP3 or get all five on CD with the last one signed. And this, like I said, there's just a whole bunch of different bundles up there as well. Just go up to Leverty.com, click over on the shop thing and go over there. And all kinds of good stuff And I'm not even sure how this one dropped into Richie's lap I'm sure that you know next time he's down here in the studio I'll find out But there was over a good time period That Bill and I were kind of going back and forth About trying to get him on the show But then there was things going on with the band and all that And it was pretty much more to talk about About gear and stuff like that More so than firehouse and recordings and all that Just weren't able to hook up With everything that was going on And how busy he was And then you know Richie goes, oh yeah, I got Bill on So I hope you guys enjoyed that one But uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal!
3: Everything else is insignificant.